0: Hello, and welcome to another Bout of Unboxing. Today, my sparring partner is John Weaver. John is a brand strategist, film producer, and writer who has worked for Nike for the last 10 years and Burton snowboarding before that. He also recently launched a book on Kickstarter called The Anti-Blueprint Project, which explores unconventional routes to happiness and success. And it questions the current dogma of go to school, go to university, get a job and explores different ways of achieving what you want to achieve in life. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to chatting to John generally today about his journey, which is quite unconventional in itself, um, and also the topic of innovation. So, John, welcome to the unboxing ring.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I'll take off my... Uh, my what. My... But they wear to the ring the dressing gown
0: yeah exactly actually that looks there a bit like a, a dressing gown what you've got on there or maybe an oversized hoodie is it
1: it's just a it's just a comfy hoodie just a comfy <laughs> hoodie it could be i i mean there may be something written on the back for all you know yeah so, good stuff
0: now it's good to see you dressed up to the occasion but yeah um i guess a little thank you and shout out to henry jackson who was um sort of the link between us and he's a guy who's been on the podcast before. So yeah, yep. so I understand that you know him from you know the snowboarding world. Where did you guys actually meet? Was yep. it when you were quite a lot younger?
1: Henry and I met around about 20 years ago now. Uh, we met in Austria. He turned up at an apartment where I was staying or vice versa, I can't remember. And we've been pretty close friends ever since. Um, he's one of those people who is, determined forthright passionate and I suppose I'm lucky enough to have kind of got close enough to him so I kind of understand how to, how to get along with him best because Henry's one of those people who can seem quite out there but he's yeah. one of the nicest people you can ever meet and he's it's funny he's actually one of the best uh, childcare people I know.
0: Yeah I really yeah it's funny because yeah. when you first see someone like Henry you just think he's sort of mad crazy yes. out the box not down to earth, but actually when I had him on the podcast, he was one yeah. of the most down to earth rational thinkers that I've had oh, on yeah. the podcast. Really has thought it through. Yeah. So yeah, I find I find yeah. that really interesting we, because
1: he also worked super hard to get where he is. So it's mm. kind of like I think he's probably spent the time thinking about it. We um we used to host a lot of events together. Yeah. Yep. And um we started out by just basically working for free, doing small events and step by step. You know, and today he's off doing like the the biggest European snowboard event over in Switzerland. So, yeah, he's carved out a wonderful, wonderful niche for himself.
0: Yeah, that's cool. It's cool to see. So, uh, yeah, just going back a little bit further, I know you write a lot about school and kind of getting different perspectives before you jump into what you choose to do in life so i'm interested what what was your school career look like how, how did it work for you like did you follow quite a conventional path initially and how, how did you end up getting um, out, in, out to the mountains
1: yeah so i went to um a regular secondary school like a you know it's public secondary school sorry not public what's it called like just the regular Private state school, school. so state school. um yeah no, uh state school yeah i just went to the regular state school and then So when I was at school, you'd still have to do the 13 plus, which was like this weird test, which would define if you would then go to a grammar school or not. And I suppose for me, that was one of the defining moments when I was growing up because I failed that test. And so then I had to stay in the regular school whilst most of my friends went off to grammar school. And I I suppose at the time I was upset about it. I didn't think too much about it, really about the, the bigger picture. But now when I look back in hindsight, you know, you do kind of think like it's a strange system that we had in place. Mm. Um, But so anyway, then I stayed in that state school till I was 16. And then I actually did um, a GMVQ. So like a vocational qualification for business. And I stayed on in that school and did it there. Um, And then whilst I was doing that GMVQ, I discovered snowboarding and something kind of went off in my head which was the luckiest moment of my life. The fact that it happened that way, like something just kind of went off in my head and I was like, I need to go snowboarding and I need to do whatever it takes to do that. So yeah, whether or not it's like working in a pub to earn money, um, working as hard as I could at school to finish early. Um, and then obviously then finding a job out in the mountains. So I worked for like one of the, one of the British holiday companies, first choice. Went out there for two years and kind of and did worked in a bar, worked in a kitchen, did whatever it took so I could go snowboarding every day. Um, and then I did come back to go to um, university in the UK. I went to Southampton Institute because it was basically the cheapest and the easiest to get into at the time. Um, and I was just like, I need the quickest, the cheapest, and also one where I get to do a semester abroad. So I went to Finland whilst I was studying as well. So
0: nice. So what was it about? had you snowboarded since you were really young and what was it about snowboarding that you hadn't, so you got into it. What, what sort of age? I, so I,
1: I skied on dry slopes in England and when I was young and then I tried snowboarding when I was 17 and it was literally like the, the minute I tried it, I like, I did a couple of turns and then I remember being on the bus on the way home and this was just one afternoon. I got in the bus and I was just like, well, that's what I'm going to do with my life. Like something went off in my head and it was just, I'm not sure the feeling of it. And I enjoyed skiing, but it was kind of like, you know, you could leave it. It was quite easy. Um, But with snowboarding, I tried it and I was just like, that is the thing that I have to, I have to do. And it was basically, you know, it it set in place a chain of events that means, that meant I put off going to college or university for two years, lost girlfriends, lost friends, like it's like the craziest drug where you're just like, I just need that thing yeah. in my life and everything else is just going to sit by the wayside.
0: Yeah. I, I asked this question to Henry, like what, what do you think mm-hmm. that it was about snowboarding that, that draw, draw you in so much? Cause it has such a strong culture and a strong like sense of identity. Like when you become a snowboarder, it, it, you're like a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. Do you, did you find that?
1: Um, yeah, it's, I mean, the honestly, the first thing for me was just the the feeling of going sideways. It was just there was something about it where I was like, yeah. this bulb, like light bulb went off in the head. But then once you got into it, then, yeah, you realize there's a culture and a community around it. And it's a, you know, it's a community that I'm very thankful for because, you know, we just moved back to Europe. And there's a lot of people I haven't seen for 10, 15 years. I know from snowboarding and like you see those people and it's as if you've never left like you're mm-hmm. still as tight as you were 15 years ago and i think that's yep. the thing which is wonderful and it's not but like it's by no means exclusive to snowboarding it's the same yeah, with yeah, yeah. skateboarding crossfit um photography like whatever your passion is yeah in general you have a community of people you know it could be the same with golf tennis whatever it is yep. like there is yep. a group of people who live and breathe that thing and i and i suppose i always just hope that people growing up can find that thing mm. that kind of moves them you know 100 percent,
0: yeah that I, I can kind of relate with with cricket for me just being part of a yeah. club and i actually went through a couple of years where i was like oh i've got better things to do with my saturdays and you know i don't need mm-hmm. to do cricket but then i couldn't really put my finger on it but something was sort of missing uh even though the thought of yeah. being in the field for but then you, 10 hours of a day wasn't really appealing but it was more just that community and going back there and then being with the guys that you that you can just kind of relax around and everything else doesn't really matter as much
1: yeah and and i think i don't know as we get older as well i've certainly found this that like if you move or you change jobs or whatever like your your the need for community becomes ever more present and especially as you get older you have kids you have more responsibilities it becomes more and more difficult to actually find a place where you can develop that community anyway. And so mm. if you have a shared passion, no matter how, because even now with snowboarding, like back in the day, we used to do tricks. We used to do this, that, and the other. Now yeah. I'm just like, okay, cool. I go up and I just like turn on my snowboard and that's totally fine.
0: Yeah. But
1: it's more just that you're like, you're part of something, which is yeah.
0: really important. hundred percent, hundred percent. So yeah, at that time, you obviously were finishing university like what what did your career path look like did did you know what you wanted to do How, like what what was the thought process <laughs> <laughs> no no
1: no no i had absolutely no clue i so in the so through at the end of university um i started writing for a snowboard magazine um i worked for 2 years for white lines and i was basically their reporter in the uk who would go to dry slopes I would write 4,000 words a month um, about all of the up and coming riders in the UK. And it was a role I really enjoyed. And that was about the extent of my career path. I basically was like, right, I'm gonna go back and do snowboard season. So I went to Austria for three years um, and I snowboarded for the first two years. And then in the last year of those three, I started like a small video production company And we made a snowboard film, Henry was in it, a few other people were in it. And, you know, it sounds wonderful, but starting a snowboard film is basically, a few of you chip in, you buy a camera, you share, you know, you share filming each other, and then at the end of the year, you edit it, put some music on it, you hold a party, and then you have a video, but, and it's something that, you know, you don't make any money on, but it teaches you a lot about how to talk to sponsors. It teaches you how to understand like, to get something done on a timeline. It's a bit like a, you know, university project, but it just meant that you had something tangible at the end. You're like, oh, I made a snowboard film.
0: Yeah, um, and and I guess a, and the again, thing, the thing about that it was it was purely like passion led. It wasn't like oh, I've got to do yeah. this for my university project, which is a big difference in mindset.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was just, I was just like, oh, I need to do something here. And I suppose I've always been someone as well, like, so we all used to do snowboard seasons, right? Where you'd go to a resort, you'd save up your money and you'd just go snowboarding every day. I struggled a little bit with that. I get a little bit like, I need to be, I need to be progressive. I need to be productive with my time. Um, and so having that as a project and then working with the magazine before meant that I could kind of combine both. And then at the end of that, so the company that I was getting snowboards from, they were, they reached out and they were sort of impressed how i put together a group of people. And I'd spoken to sponsors and we did an event and they asked me to come on and like intern for them and see what it would look like to start working with them in the future. So that's when I started working down in Innsbruck at Burton.
0: Okay, got it. So what I wanted to ask was just like during this whole yeah. process of, you know, being around the slopes and you know not really yeah. sure where it's going to end up like was there something hang over you it was like I, I should be getting a real job or was there any kind of pressure that was trying to make you like stay in the uk or just like kind of go down the more traditional route or did you have kind of parents and and friends that didn't really push you down that um
1: i suppose when I decided at the age of 18 to go snowboarding, I I sort of detached myself from the UK thing. Right. And I was, I, since then I've not had that thing where I'm like, I need to be in the UK for a certain amount of time. So my parents, I think once I got a degree, they were, they were kind of like, okay, well you've done it's that. Up to you, now. you will figure it out eventually. But um, no, I don't, I didn't have like a pressure. I suppose the thing that I did have was progress every year. Like I had some form of progression. So like I started working for a magazine. So I learned how to do that and I'd never done that before. So I, progress was the thing that felt good to me. Then the next year, you know, I started putting together the, the business plan for the video. So there was some progress and learning there. And I suppose without a grand master plan, any goals in place, I at least knew what I was doing was doing more than I'd done the year before. And I suppose that was the way I kind of judged everything. Like was this year a more successful year than last year. Nice. Um, And I guess I've kind of just tried to continue that for the
0: last 15 years. Nice. Hello, I hope you are enjoying the show so far. I just wanted to take time in this short break to bring to your awareness, a little Facebook group that I run totally free called the unboxing gym and i'm always looking to connect with innovators doing exciting and new things so if any of this show resonates with you and you feel you could benefit from connecting with um, a wide array of other innovators do just simply drop me a message and i'd love to hear from you enjoy the rest of the show So you wrote this book, The Anti-Blueprint Project. I I just wanted you to Mm -hmm. maybe just explain what that is for anyone who hasn't heard of it, um, first of all. But also I'm interested in in like where this passion came from to talk about that subject. Like was that something that you Mm -hmm. were really passionate about even when you were 22, 23, doing it your own way? Or is that something that's like upon reflection you've become more passionate about?
1: Yeah, so... um... To start with the book itself is a collection of stories featuring 50 people who have let's call it non traditional career paths um, exploring how they've achieved happiness and success, they come from a a wide um, variety of backgrounds across multiple different fields. Um, I also then pulled it together with 12 different chapters which kind of tie in, what are the traits that all these people have so goal setting, finding mentors, things like this. I, I'd never ever had the the goal of writing a book. Like it was never something on my radar. Um, but what I did have was always this inkling and like this thing inside that like the the way that we're conditioned at school. And you know, at school that you need to do this to go to university to get this job. I always had this feeling that that wasn't really right or Mm -hmm. I can tell you, it's not right for everyone. Like Mm -hmm. some people it's, you know, if you're going to be a lawyer for sure, you need to do it that way. But I just, I think the fact that it's kind of fed to everyone, it just always sat quite strangely with me. And there was a few things that led me to that. Um, I think, first of all, we moved to the U S in 2012 and over there, you become acutely aware of it and the pressure that's forced on younger people. Um, You know, and it's ever So there was a friend that I, a really good friend at Nike that I worked with, and he went to a university called uh, Bowling Green. And, you know, like I'd be with him at lunch and someone would be like, oh, where did you study? And he'd say Bowling Green. And they'd like just laugh them out of the building almost. And I was like, well, he's still got a degree, but there's this like, there's this crazy thing in the US. Like if you didn't go to an Ivy League school, And obviously, you know, to go to an Ivy League school, you're going to get into debt of like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm. Um, And so I suppose seeing that in the US, it just didn't sit right with me. And then, you know, there's another woman I worked with and her daughter is 14 and she was going to a a high school and they were paying uh, $38,000 a year for her to go to this school at the age of 14. So I was just like, well, that number only goes up. Right. If it's 38 this year, next year it's 50, then she goes to college. Like they're gonna have spent half a million dollars on this girl's education. Um, and who's to say that she gets to the end of it and she just like rebels against everything. And is just like, you know, this isn't for me. So- Which she, which she should. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we all do at some point. But I suppose, and then, so I, I'm seeing all this pressure on one hand And then I'm looking around and I'm seeing a lot of friends and friends of friends who are doing amazing things. And I'm thinking, well, like that person never even went to college. I know full well, that person dropped out of college. That person did go to college, but they studied something different. And so the book was kind of my attempt just to show kids that, Hey, you don't need to have everything dialed at the age of 14. Don't have that stress weighing around your shoulders. Just again, even if it's progress, whatever it is, as long as you're enjoying what you're doing in your you're learning as you go you will figure it out in the end but don't listen to people who are trying to tell you that you need your entire life mapped out at the age of 15 because I just I think it becomes so harmful for for kids that they that they're sort of thinking that way
0: yeah it's really interesting. I wrote a post on LinkedIn which, which seemed to hit a bit of a nerve which was like that concept of you you thinking about you're constantly thinking about mapping your life out and making it all look perfect, that you actually forget to enjoy and live in the moment. Yeah. And I think that's what school and uni, the narrative always is. It's like, I know this is shit and it's a sacrifice now, but it will be better next year when you're in sixth form. And then when you're in sixth form, it will be better when you're at uni. And then when you're at uni, it'll be better when you've got the great job. But there's always that net. And it's never like... Do what you want to do right now and enjoy it and we'll support you in that yeah. process of learning and exploring. And I think yeah, and it, that it's just interesting I, why it's like I had
1: that. a I know I had a so I had a few things over the last few years. So my, my mother passed away in 20, 2015, 2016, my mother passed away. And she was very much like live for the moment, etc. Mm-hmm. etc. But you know, they did a great job of planning, etc. Yeah. But as as we grow up, right? You depending on what happens to you in life and health, etc. Like you kind of almost have, especially when you're in your twenties, you almost have this feeling of in, like being impervious to anything. Like I can get drunk all night long. I don't suffer from hangovers. Like I can just get through life. It's fine. And then and there's a quote. I forget who it's from, but it's it's basically like you almost you have two lives, and your real life starts once you realize that you're not immortal. And I know for me, I was like you know, when my mom passed away, I was like, what was I, 30, 36 or something, right? And I'm Mm. just like, oh, damn, like, so there, you know, this thing doesn't go forever. Like, there is, there is an end to it all. So, and Mm. it did just make me think 100% correctly. And that's what she would always say, just like, enjoy what you're doing right now. Um, Because, and I think this is the thing that, that this narrative that everyone's kind of fed, and you put it really nicely, is like, next year this will be great and then you'll do this and then this will be great and then when you start in the workplace it's like well next year you get three percent pay rise so you can buy that car you want and then you'll be happy and then you get this house yeah. you want and you're just like yeah like everyone's keeping the hamster wheel going but like at what point you almost just jump off the hamster wheel for a year and go like I'm just going to enjoy life for a minute here yeah. yeah because it it's just a it's kind of an unsustainable pace i feel like you know
0: I feel like a treadmill like that kind of treadmill is a is a good Mm -hmm. metaphor for it because that's what it feels like when you just uh, it's it's amazing how many people come on here and actually like mortality comes up even though it's you know just a podcast about starting your own business and innovation but when I've had people who've just said that yeah they had a, a, a a, a relation who died or just something that mm-hmm. sprung up in them and goes, I am actually and really like bring it to the forefront of your mind that I am actually
1: yeah.
0: going to die and I'm only here for a certain amount of time. And it yeah. just brings things into focus. Um, so, yeah, I think that yes. there's there's certain like philosophies that really do say like you should think about your death every day because it actually helps you to focus and gives you perspective
1: which it's, I mean, so we're all like, I've got two kids now as well. And so like we had my son, my mom passed away. And so there was just like a lot of things at the time. And it's interesting because recently, so I left Nike recently and quite a few people were, you know, laid off, let go, I'm going to call it. And they all got really good packages, you know, and a couple of people were upset about it. And I, and I suppose I was saying to them, I was like, well, if, if you've got kids, like, and I look at this myself, I'm like, I am never going to have the opportunity again to have one kid of five and one kid of two. Next year, they'll be older. In five years, my oldest probably won't even give me the time of day. So I'm like, enjoy kind of what's going on right now. Because yeah, you know, like you could be like, well, I need to earn this money to do this for this moment. It's like anything could happen. So let's just, you know, enjoy where we are right now. Um, and this does, does fly into, like, I do try and do as much planning and goal setting and all the rest of it as I can. And but I've just, over the few last few years, I've definitely just begun thinking about the, the balance between the two.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is, is, I think sometimes we're sold that you can't do both. It's like either you're this really yep. practical person who follows the conventional path, or you're just this, like, ridiculous free yep. spirit who doesn't plan the next day ahead. But actually, you can be both. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think it's better because I I know a lot of people who are in the, the latter group, yeah. the free spirit. Yeah. They want to go to Bali. And to actually take pride in not planning
0: on any of that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I, when I see that, I'm like, that, that doesn't sit well with me either. But I think there is a yep. thing of just like, there is a middle ground and it's yep. like, you, you know, everyone needs to find where the pendulum swings for them and just find that sweet spot, you know?
0: Yeah, I really like that. I think that's a big big theme of this podcast is, is trying to find that middle ground. Mm-hmm. Cause I think when people do break away from that conventional path is they quickly get stereotyped as this, oh, you're just like free spirit and you don't care at all about yeah. your future and it's risky and all of that kind of stuff. But actually we need to talk more about this middle ground and, and make it more approachable and accessible, I guess.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's funny cause like the process we've been going through as a family relocating, you know, leaving Nike, like a few people have actually reached out to me like, oh, can we just talk about how you did this? Like people who are doing really well for themselves where you're a bit where they almost want to be like, how, how did you do it? Are you okay? Like what's going on? Because they also want to do the same kind of thing. Yeah. And it's just funny the people that do reach out.
0: Mm, Yeah. That's interesting. Oh, and yeah. So just before I want to ask you all about Nike and that experience i just wanted to ask you about looking looking forward so you have now have kids who are quite young i I understand um so how do you look at school now and knowing all of these things that we've talked about um you know what 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 position does that put you in sort of awareness wise and is it just a case of are they going to go to a, a fairly conventional school but then you just kind of will talk to them about these other perspectives or how do you see it
1: they, so right now they're going to like uh they're at a daycare that they haven't started like primary school as we would do in England. They go into it's like kind of a farm school. There's like a there's a horse and a dog and a cat and they eat vegan food every day. It's like in a farm. Yeah. Um and there's kids there from Sweden, Portugal, uh France, Germany, kids from all over, so they're all together. They all speak Portuguese. Um, and then they talk to our kids in English if they need something from them. I think the thing that when it comes, like, they'll go to a pretty traditional schooling system, I think, just in terms of, like, opportunities down the line, I want to ensure that they kind of
0: mm.
1: get the, the proper experience, e- even if it's that, you know, even if it's more from a show, social aspect. But what I am going to do and what we've done since they were born is just ensure that they get to see that there is a much wider world out there. Um, And that means obviously through travel, but also the people that they get to meet, you know, one of the reasons for us coming back to Europe was just the community of friends we have around. So like in Austria, we have a lot of really, really good close friends. And so like, I always feel like for my son, especially, he's almost got like seven uncles, you know, wherever he goes, there's like two or three of these amazing characters in our life who are just, you know, like Henry's one of them, right? Like I would trust him with my kids. It's, you know, we just trying to make sure that they get to see that there is this many people who are doing their own thing um, mm-hmm. and carving their own path. So that's kind of the the balance again, mm-hmm. like showing them the traditional way, but also making sure they understand like, like, you know, here's this amazing group of people around us who have just created all of this for themselves.
0: Exactly, yeah. A- again, it's that, I've heard examples of where um, people have gone a bit too far the other way and sort of sent their kids to these very unconventional schools and actually yeah. ended up regretting it because it's such a different way of living to the, the majority of the population and there's opportunities missed. So I think that kind of, again, that balance is probably yeah. a good way of looking at it, even though I'm, I'm open to people coming up with kind of these new concepts around homeschooling and online learning and those kind of things as well. And it
1: to be honest, it's going to be interesting as well, because by the time our kids get to like the age of going to a university or something, Mm. it's going to be pretty interesting to see if that Mm. model is still really a thing Mm. because, yeah, I agree. You know, there's companies in the U S now, like Google, for example, are taking kids straight out of high school, I believe. And they're just training them exactly for what they need at Mm. Google. You know, I, I always thought Nike as well. It, it, part of the learning at a big company like Nike, I'm sure Google, whoever else is, that is more just understanding how that business works itself. Mm. And sometimes you could almost say like, okay, we'll create a university within this company. Mm. Yep. And that almost takes you to more of a, like a more of a Germanic, like vocational style learning. So my wife did a diploma. So she worked at, she worked at a business while studying for three years. So she earned money, she didn't get in debt, but at the end she came out with like a diploma Mm. and so it's going to be interesting where we get to in you know 15 years because you you do have to wonder especially in the way the US is going like how willing parents or kids are going to be to sign up for that much amount of debt
0: yeah I agree yeah I I think that's a good way of looking at I can definitely see companies sort of overlapping into or taking over university and maybe even that creeping into school and actually yeah Blurring the lines a bit more, so there's more of a seamless transition from school to the real world of work, and like starting to think in like problem-solving ways that are that are beneficial for for companies and commercially, rather than just you know learning about biology until you're 22 and then having to throw it all out the window. Well,
1: because it's difficult as well. Because if you even look at any job descriptions which are thrown up on LinkedIn or whatever, it's like must have a degree, must have this many years of Um, experience and you're like, well, where are all these people getting the experience at some point, you know, like me, I got lucky and I'm sure like most of us happen chance you get lucky somewhere, but you do kind of wonder, like, you know, if people are expected to get this experience, wouldn't, wouldn't a new model like that kind of work a little bit better.
0: Mm. Yep exactly no it would be interesting it'll be interesting to see um i i think yeah i think it's on the brink of a bit of a change and i think with people being at home and, yeah. and not actually at schools there's a big opportunity to change it so yeah i'm sure we'll both be yeah. watching closely But yeah, John, I, I was very keen to just um, yeah. move the conversation on to, so you, you said how you got into the, to Burton and then how you then mm-hmm. got into Nike and your experiences there. Obviously, we hear a lot about Nike as being um, a very innovative company. It's kept, you know, ahead of the game in the, in the sports world for so long. So talk to me about some of your experiences mm-hmm. there, in particularly in, in relation to that innovation piece and how you've now sort of used those experiences for what you do now.
1: Yeah. So when you start at Nike, you have like this onboarding, they call it running start, you know, there is an amazing museum. And you kind of get given the tour about what Nike was built on. And, you know, growing up, especially through the 90s, right, like, you would see people turn up at school with a pair of Air Max, a pair of Jordans, and you just like, like what are those shoes like where did they come from look like come from out (laughs) of space and you just assume it's this massive this behemoth of a brand and it is you know it's like what a 40 billion dollar company revenue wise but when you go to the campus you realize or if you read Shoe Dog um the Phil the Phil Knight autobiography you realize that that was just two dudes Phil, Phil Knight and Bill Bowman um who they were just taking I believe they were just taking regular shoes tweaking them adapting them and you know even in this museum they've got like a waffle iron which is which was found in Bill Bauman's garden because back in the day they used to like bury all the trash just that's the solution they had in the U.S. and you know it's from where they were taking I believe it was like Adidas track shoes putting them in a waffle iron to try and increase the grip and make it lighter by and I suppose that's the thing with when you start at a company like Nike, you realize that that innovation is so crucial to what they do. Like it is the, the DNA of everything. Um, so if you think about any of the world's most innovative brands, and like you can say Nike, but you can say Tesla, Apple, they're known as kind of cool brands, you know, I was doing yep. research today and you see it, it's always on teenagers, top cool brands, all of them ranked in innovation. Like if you work at Apple every year, you're tasked with, okay, in September, we have the keynote speech, what's the new iPhone, the new app, mm-hmm. the new MacBook Pro? Same with Tesla, like they're on the screaming edge of innovation. And I think that's what I realized at Nike, everything's anchored in that, you know, and some of the innovations that have come out over the past few years, like the, um, I believe the Alpha Flight Next%, like the shoe that um, Kipchoge wore to yep. break the two-hour marathon record, you know seeing that shoe like we tested it a year or so ago and you see the difference between that and where running shoes were it is it's unbelievable and it's just like that across the board and everyone who works there especially on the product teams are just laser focused on that and but it's not just innovation for innovation's sake the other thing that goes in partnership with that is when you work at a company like Nike you realize how intently and it's written on the walls as well is like Listen to the voice of the athlete, like, and I would use this for all people in marketing, all people in product creation, like listen to the people that are using the product. It's so e- easy to get focused on. I'm a snowboarder or let's say, or I'm a photographer. I think X, Y, Z, like your own beliefs may be so kind of warped by things that you've done over the 20 years. You always have to listen to like, what are the people who are using in the product every day mm-hmm. telling you? And it's interesting that that's, it's even become like sort of the in, the business of insights behind product creation and marketing has become such a crucial part of bigger businesses over the last 10, 15 years. Um, and that's probably the the sort of the thing that is then able to ensure the innovation isn't just innovation for innovation's sake. Mm, mm. It's an innovation that when you try it, you're like, oh, okay, they they made this based on an athlete insight. Mm. Um there was a. I worked on our training business when we launched uh, CrossFit footwear. So we launched the MetCon. We actually did it in London. We had like a big event there down by Tower Bridge. And so Reebok kind of owned the CrossFit space at the time. They still had the contract. And then we brought out this shoe, yeah, the MetCon, and it had like a heel clip on the back. So when you do handstand push-ups, your foot wouldn't get stuck with the rubber against the wall. It would just slide up and down nicely it had like on your arch, it had like upgraded um, rubber. So the shoe wouldn't kind of wouldn't wear out when you're doing rope climbs and stuff. And they're those things that you don't really think about until you're upside down trying to do a handstand and your foot's not moving against the wall. But when you see product that just works, it's just, again, it's the same as the MacBook. Like you open it you're like, oh, I understand why they've done that. Yep. And that's kind of where the innovation really comes into its own.
0: Yep. Yeah, I really like that. It it's it's a really important point because I think and I think that's advice that I can even take on. It's like it's all well and good, like coming out with these really like sexy new ideas that that sound great and make a great mm-hmm. Instagram page or whatever it might be. But if they're not actually solving a real problem, they're not they're not really that innovative. Yes. Um <clears throat> so were there any specific examples yeah. of like what Nike would tell you know brand strategists like you to do would it just be as simple as go and speak like say you're bringing out a new football boot go and speak to the person who's going to be the number one user and just get absolutely clear on what it is that they want and then just keep repeating the process
1: well you know the way that the way product is created, it's it's sort of in a, in a tiering process anyway, right? So f- across the whole market, if you were to go into Nike Town London, for example, and if you use the football boot example, mm. you can go in there and you can buy the, whatever it is, $300 Mercurial that Cristiano Ronaldo. It's built for Cristiano Ronaldo, right? Mm. It is, if I try that boot on and I try and play, I'm just like, if it, for me, it's not kind of the boot for me. But it's built to his exact specifications. It says it in the footwear. You know exactly why they've built that. What they do, though, is, you know, then as you kind of go down the, the price structure and also the distribution and it goes wider and things like this, it is then designed a bit more for like the average user as well. And that okay. some of that is then based on the insights that are given to them. So, um, but, you know, I, I worked on our women's business for, three years you know and so i worked on our sports bra business and that as a you know if the mercurial is like built for the champions league winning goal scoring cristiano the sports bra is made more for sort of everyone to have a better experience when they do sport and so that is product which is you know it's it's designed built on the insights from thousands of women around the world um and i think that's the Again, that's where the magic happens. Like when you when you're actually listening to what people are telling you about the product, that's when they can kind of build the best the best product or the best gear. So
0: yeah, awesome. Yeah, I, I really like it, and it's it's cool to hear how innovation works. At that, you can still keep it going through a company that's got to that size. Because we we normally think of innovation happening by the entrepreneur who sets up his you know, business um, out of his bedroom or raise his X amount of money, but actually mm-hmm. staying ahead of the game by those bigger businesses is 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 really, you know, fascinating to hear about. It,
1: I would say as well, just with that as well, it's like there is also, again, with a business that size, you have, you know, my old boss would say, you can do whatever you want, you just can't do everything. Like there is a lot of opportunity to, to do, to make innovation happen but obviously with a huge organization like that, it's not easy. So quite Mm -hmm. often, some of those like very on the edge projects are, are kept like with sort of under lock and key, you know, and there is a kind of sports research lab where it's like that work is done. And that is where, you know, you have one or two athletes in there spending days, weeks, months, working on like refining footwear apparel, like, just the smallest refinements that can make a huge difference. Yeah. Um you know and so but again like and that innovation space is very much like beholden as kind of like the the crown jewel of the family. It's like this is what we like the 2 hour running shoe like that's the thing that will take this company forward and there's been you know there's been a few of those over the the years you know if you think about it, even like the first pair of Jordans um that kind of product creation, that's where it comes from.
0: Yeah. Awesome. have got a couple of questions for you that I'd just like to, to throw at you, um, and then you'll have to pick okay. um, your track to play you out. So my first mm-hmm. question is, what is something that you believe that most people don't? Or what's something that you don't believe that most people do? Oh Jesus.
1: Um something I believe that most people don't. Oh my god, you've kind of got me here. Um well okay, so I suppose I can give you almost two answers. One is that again, like this traditional path isn't to be isn't to be uh believed all it's cracked up to be. Like I think there is a non-traditional path. Um, I'm going to leave it at that.
0: Nice, like it. Nice and <laughs> simple. My other one yeah. was a bit more. My other one was. Top no, go and I was like, might go just, there. Go there. I'm 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 interested to hear it.
1: Well, no, it's basically like if like the whole thing we're living through right now, lockdowns, yeah. all this other thing, right?
0: Yeah. Like quarantine, masks.
1: Like it, everyone's so worried about this virus. It's like, why don't we just ban cigarettes? Like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah just beyond beyond me like just ban (laughs) cigarettes ban alcohol and be done with it
0: yeah what do you mean there's just a complete like imbalance in what we perceive to be dangerous and what we're still doing that's way more dangerous
1: yeah i i mean i think the whole like the virus etc is super dangerous don't get me wrong like people i know have lost people but if we are going down this road we know full well how many people die from cigarettes every year mm, alcohol exactly. i mean mcdonald's you might as well shut mcdonald's right now like all of these things they're all preventable
0: mm.
1: like obesity is preventable
0: but also what's the interesting thing yeah. is is that what even we're seeing in the data is that is <clears throat> people who are already prone to illness sickness yes. in general are the ones that mm-hmm. are more prone to another illness so that's what doesn't add up in my head either about this
1: well that's the thing if you look at the you know the the death rates in like the us and the uk i mean you know that already last year they were worried about the virus going into the us because the standard population's health is so bad Mm. you know and it's like the sugar in the diet the lack of the lack of exercise
0: Mm. So anyway, yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you a- I'm glad you brought it up because <laughs> I think it, yeah, it is an emotionally charged one, and you know, there's people. It is a real thing, and people have had it, and it's mm-hmm. it's bad. But I've always wondered. I'm I find the psychology of of COVID very interesting, and I find people who are naturally quite sort of self empowered and and sort of take responsibility on themselves are generally a little bit less mm-hmm. fearful and scared and caring about it, but yeah um, yeah okay <laughs> it's not a covid podcast so um but no yeah, i'm, I'm exactly. glad you put it up and i think um i think it's an important point um yeah the second question um is how would you like the world to be different in five years time
1: um i would like the world to be more understanding of each other one of the biggest issues I see over the last twenty years is that you know we all live in these like echo chambers for what we believe. Mm. Um, you know the way the algorithm works. If you think the Earth is flat, you get served up stuff about the Earth being flat. Mm. Um, you know if you and you see what happened in the U.S. over the last two years. You know the fact that you know people believe they can storm Capitol Hill and that they they're actually going to be able to keep a a failed president in power people seem so forthright with their beliefs at the moment and there is no room to have a conversation with anyone Mm. about it and that's on both sides of the yeah that's on both sides left and right and I I just think it's such a we've got the world has got to a place now where it's like you you either believe everything i say mm. or i'm dead against you yeah and i just think it's it's such a such a dangerous place to be for the world mm. like as an example i'll give you, like you know in the us there's a few major issues right and i know there's some in the uk as well i'm just saying from the us but it's like are you more capitalist or socialist? I'd mm. say I'm probably on the risk scale, maybe a little bit more capitalist, but I love what socialism does, or mm. socialist mm. healthcare, um, gun control. I'm 100% for gun control. Uh, da, da, you know, and the list continues, right? And if you're not the same as like all the people in that camp, you're discarded. And it go, and same on the other side. So I just more understanding um mm. and more communication
0: yeah i i think that Less is divisiveness a, a, yeah, i really like that one i think it's seriously important and it, it's that key thing if it's not like we're so caught up in trying to find the one truth that everyone has to believe <laughs> in and then everyone wants to win people over to that way of thinking but actually yeah Maybe it's that we're realizing that everyone is actually quite diverse in their cognition and their percep- perception and perspective. And that's actually mm-hmm. quite a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. How you then tie that in and make it work as a wider community and society is is probably the question at hand and is complex. But, yeah, I completely agree with you. Like, why do you have to be judgmental of people that think in a different way to you? Like, what what is it? Is it a game of winning everyone over to your way of seeing the world I just
1: like I have a friend who's a Man United fan right I'm a Swansea fan it doesn't mean I hate him because he's a Man United fan that's just how was brought up yeah it's it, you know and and the problem is in again I say the USA lived there like if you go to dinner and someone is like well I voted for Trump it's like People like, well, that guy is a complete idiot, da da, you know, and then it goes off down this path, and people are just mm. you're not able to have that same like there just isn't even a conversation able to yep. you're not even able to have a conversation about it, which I struggle with.
0: Yeah. And then it what it forces is is kind of everyone to go to the lowest common denominator of what we can all agree on, which tends to be real small talk. And mm-hmm. you know, we can't have a, a kind of understanding non-judgmental chat with people who are completely different from us but yeah i think it's a really good one and um yeah we'll, we'll see. maybe facebook will have to <laughs> tone down what they're doing a bit to help us out but no i really like that one that's really cool and then um yeah just to wrap things up um yeah anyway who comes into the unboxing ring rather than a track to play them in and hype them up they get a, a track to uh, drop the mic and, and play them out so what would yours be and and why
1: Um, so my track would be Eminem "Lose Yourself." So I'm not sure what year it was. Maybe 2001. Um, I was snowboarding, and I, there was a competition in Batsy Batsy Park, Batsy Power Station, and I really wanted yeah. to be in it. And I never got an invite. And I was always like, "That's the one I need to get into." And it was when that Eminem album had come out. And I remember I had it on my headphones, and I took all my stuff to Batsy. And I was like, I'm just going to jump over the fence and just act and look the part and walk up to the top of the jump and just ride this thing. Um, you know, and the way the song goes, it's like, if you had one shot, if you had one chance to do this thing, like da da da. And that's kind of how I felt. I was like, well, I have this one opportunity to show people that I can snowboard to a decent level. This is the moment. This is the time to do it. So
0: Eminem loses. Uh, and yeah, how, how did that song. moment go?
1: Uh, it was good. I hit the jump like I think four or five times before kind of anyone really realized what was going on. And uh, yeah, I remember like I got a photo doing like a front side rodeo and then um, that got printed. So I was pretty stoked on the whole thing. So
0: Love it. Awesome. All right, we'll have that to play so, you out. Um, yeah, John, yeah. thanks a lot for coming in. Really enjoyed that chat. And um, yeah, hopefully stay in touch and look forward to see what, what you're doing.
1: Will do. And keep up the great work with uh, unboxing. I'm excited
0: to keep following cheers mate see you later
1: look if you had one shot one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted
0: Oh, there goes gravity. Oh, there goes gravity. Joke, he's so ma-